This is a Rooster Teeth production. Is Dracula a myth, or was the blood-sucking fiend inspired by a real, insidious man with a lust for carnage? It's time to meet one of history's most notorious madmen on 30 Morbid Minutes. This is the podcast where we investigate topics, people, places, and history of a morbid, macabre, dark, and downright grisly nature. It's sort of an exploration of human nature, if you will. I'm Elise Willems. And I'm Jessica Vasami. In 1462, Ottoman Sultan Mehmed II, aka Mehmed the Conqueror, marched on the Wallachian capital of Targoviste, hell-bent on annexing the land for his empire with an army of almost 90,000 soldiers in tow. His opposition? Vlad Tsepes, a.k.a. Vlad the Impaler, the ruler and voivode of Wallachia at the time. Vlad had angered the sultan after he refused to pay taxes to the Ottoman Empire, as was customary from the Ottomans' non-Muslim neighbors. Oh, and Vlad had also decapitated and impaled the tax envoys sent to claim the payment, so that might have had something to do with it, too. Sure, the sultan had an impressive military might, but Vlad wasn't about to lay down and die. He raised his own militia of 30,000 and started a defense attack on the oncoming Ottomans, cutting off their resources and launching guerrilla raids. Vlad even infiltrated the Ottoman camp, using his upbringing in the Ottoman Empire to disguise himself as a Turk and gather intel. Very sneaky. Mm. On the night of June 17, 1462, Vlad executed what is now referred to as the night attack on Teragoviste. He descended from his hiding place in the mountains under the cover of darkness and unleashed his army on the Ottoman encampment. One contemporary observer described it as such. During the entire night, he sped like lightning in every direction and caused great slaughter. Despite this covert attack and how ruthless Vlad and his men were, they could not find and kill the sultan and were chased out of the camp. But Vlad had another, more sinister surprise for his enemy, right Jess? When the sultan and his army approached the capital of Wallachia, they were met with a horrific welcome. Vlad the Impaler had done what he did best, impaling. Oh, he did. Before the Ottomans was a sea of wooden stakes. And stacked on those stakes were over 20,000 rotting and brutalized corpses of Turks, spanning across seven acres, including the sultan's own general, who had led that tax envoy. Woof. Pretty intense, and 20,000 corpses is a lot of corpses. It is. So. Where did he learn this from? Where did he learn how to, to, to I think we're going to get into that. And yeah. I, I guess the question is, where did he have all these corpses yes. just on hand? Yeah. Um, I guess he was stockpiling bodies from the raids that you mentioned, Jess. Mm. And he also offed all of the Ottoman prisoners of war he had in his cells in preparation for this moment. Hmm. Jeez. Oh, but regardless, this dramatic and horrific display sent a huge message. Another story claims that the sultan was seized with amazement and said that it was not possible to deprive of his country a man who had done such great deeds, who had such a diabolical understanding of how to govern his realm and its people. And so the sultan took the army, left Wallachia, and returned to Turkey. Gosh, I mean, I guess it's like game respects game mm -hmm. sort of situation there. Today on 30 Morbid Minutes, we are covering the life and unbelievably hellish deeds of Vlad the Impaler, ruler, military, strategi mm -hmm. strategist, yeah. 
uh, just kind of a insane torture. Ins- insane, yet theme. so fascinating. So fascinating. He was so savage and merciless that his real life actions and legacy of cruelty have cemented his place in the history books. And some even claim helped inspire one of literature's greatest villains, Dracula. That's a little debatable. We'll get into that later. Yeah. 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 (laughs) But before we get into that, let us give you some background on Vlad's origins and set the stage for the man he would become. Mm -hmm. Vlad was born circa 1428 to 1431 in the 15th century, and he died sometime between 1476 and 1477, around the age of 45. So not so old, middle-aged, mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. He, yeah, he was middle-aged in the Middle Ages. That's <laughs> how I like to think about it. And uh, for a frame of reference, here's what else was going on in the world during the time Vlad lived. Because it's always fascinating to me yep. to see how different parts of regions of the world align based on history and 100%. geopolitical stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Joan of Arc was tried and burned at the stake for heresy. And the Hundred Years' War was being waged between France and England at this time, too. The Byzantine Empire fell after a 53-day siege of Constantinople. The Aztec Empire was recently formed and establishing itself as a military power that would come to be defined by its great pyramids, large cities, and farming culture. That one is so fascinating to me that yeah. this was going on at the same time. Yes, Joan of um, Arc was yeah. alive. It's it's it's, it's bonkers. Mm-hmm. The Mali Empire, once a great African empire, was significantly weakening. However, it was still enjoying the tail end of the golden era of the Trans-Sahara trade. Mm-hmm. Goldsmith uh, Johannes Gutenberg invented the printing press around 1440. So we're starting to see things actually get chronicled more and more this time because we can make copies of of right, written work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Native Americans lived free from colonization on their land as part of nations and extended clans. Mm-hmm. In the Americas. And territorial expansion and Chinese culture was flourishing under the Ming Dynasty. And the Great Wall, as it exists today, was revived and fortified under the Ming era. So that was a big project then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, so. It's fascinating. I know. There are lots of really cool books that show these timeline comparisons of world history. Yeah, because when you when you talk about all of this history, you think that they just happen at so many different points in time. And then now when you put it all together and you're like, wait, this was going on all at the same time? What is history? <laughs> yeah, this mid-15th century stretch especially had a lot going on. Empires rising and falling, new worlds on the brink of discovery. And then there's Vlad. Uh, little Vladimir, born in Wallachia, not the not the nearby Transylvania, which many people assume mm-hmm. because of these Vlad Dracula comparisons. If you've never heard of Wallachia, you might be more familiar with the modern day state of which it comprises the southernmost portion, which is Romania. In addition to Wallachia, Romania is made up of three other historical provinces: Transylvania, Moldova, and Dobrogea. Wallachia was founded in the 14th century, but by the time of Vlad's reign was a powerful sovereign state that separated Christian Europe from the Ottoman Empire and thus served as a common battleground for both land and ideology. Oh, yeah. It, uh, it was kind of like this piece of land that everyone was jockeying for, essentially for what, how you just described it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it. Uh It was, you know, kind of like a, a gateway yeah. between these two cultures. 100%. Uh, Vlad was technically Vlad III and inherited his power from his father, Vlad II, who was the illegitimate son of a great military leater, Mircea I of Wallachia. And 
okay, this is such a confusing episode because there are so many Vlads. There's Vladislavs. It's, yep. There's a, a lot of proper nouns. Mm-hmm. So Vlad too, um, from here on out, will now be referred to as Vlad Dad. This makes sense in my brain. So Vlad Dad is the father of Vlad the Impaler. And this is how we're going to address him. Mm-hmm. And the Vlad Dad shirts are on the way. Can't wait. Um, I got I'm yeah, here I got it. impaled by Vlad Dad. Um, <laughs> <Stop> it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so Vlad Dad, you know, he's this illegitimate son. He doesn't have a, a right, but then he gets backed by the support of his patron, the King of Hungary. Mm-hmm. And that's how he first seizes control of Wallachia, which then later gives Vlad the Impaler this idea that he has legitimacy to be Mm -hmm. ruling this land. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yes, there was also a little bit of Stockholm syndrome thing going on here because Vlad dad essentially lived as a hostage in the Hungarian court as a kid. Okay. So to say that this was common, it sounds totally reductive. I know that. But as Game of Thrones taught us, taking a kid hostage from a neighboring principality was definitely, it was a moment then. Okay. It was a thing that happened surprisingly a lot. Yeah, learned a lot from Game of Thrones. I know it's fantasy, but, you know. Yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yes, and, you know, it happened to his son, Vlad the Impaler, too, who went to live in the Ottoman Empire alongside his brother as collateral. Anyway, it's safe to say that Vlad Dad was treated well, and his connection to the Hungarians ultimately led to him being declared the Prince of Wallachia. Yeah, and from what I've read, it sounds like he was treated well, but then some other conflicting reports say like, oh no, he actually maybe have would have been tortured at a certain time, or he had all this resentment to the Ottomans, and his younger brother, who was held as a ward alongside him, drank, like drank the Kool-Aid, but Vlad always harbored this, you know, desire to get revenge. No, that makes complete sense. And also, you know, as I watch and do research on all these like true crime documentary things and just people that have gone and done awful, awful things later in life, there there seems to, not all the time, but there's sometimes sort of like a connection as to like what happened in your childhood and, and children being oh, abused. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And nature, yeah. If he was tortured as a child, because the things he has done are awful. Yeah, you have to be a creative mind. <laughs> yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Everything we described was transpiring during a period of upheaval where everyone was dethroning everyone else constantly. Mm-hmm. So at some point, Vlad the Impaler's Vlad dad was able to be in the right place at the right time and make this claim for Wallachia. But not for long, of course, because it was also pretty common that rulers would be overthrown and lose their throne, only to go into exile for a bit, then come back and reclaim it. It was a revolving door around those parts. Uh-huh. And back to the Hungarian connection for a second, because we're about to tell you something that I think you'll be very interested to learn. Vlad Dad was in the pocket of Sigismund, who was the monarch of Hungary and a few other principalities. And Sigismund was also the head of this chivalric order modeled after the Crusades called the Order of the Dragon. Its members consisted of high aristocrats and monarchy who pledged to defend the sanctity of Christianity from any forces that threatened it, primarily the Ottoman Empire. Yes, and as per this Order of the Dragon, Vlad Dad assumed the moniker Vlad Dracul. Sound familiar? Dracul, <laughs> which translates to Vlad the Dragon, which is where Vlad III, a.k.a. Vlad the Impaler, got one of his other nicknames, Dracula, mm-hmm. because in Old Romanian, Draculea means son of Dracul. There it is. Here we go. It's all coming all together. Right. Now I finally understand. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> 
The reign of Vlad Dad came to an end in 1447 when he was assassinated by Wallachian nobles. And here's where it gets a bit confusing because everybody in this episode is Vlad, as we mentioned before, so please bear with us. In 1447, John Hunyadi, regent governor of Hungary, organized an invasion of Wallachia. It was during this time that the Wallachian boyars basically the nobility, betrayed Vlad Dad and killed him. John Hunyadi then installed Vlad the Impaler's cousin, Vladislav II, into power. Oh, and these same uh, Wallachian local warlords also tortured, blinded, and buried alive Vlad's older brother, Mircha. That would be a sticking point for me, personally. Yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so Vladislav II, cousin, becomes of a void after Vlad Dad's death. And naturally, Vlad the Impaler is kind of pissed. Pissed. Yeah, the rest of his life was a cycle of trying to regain control and power, which he did. He ultimately held the title of Voivode of Wallachia on three separate occasions. The first time didn't last very long. I should mention that when Vlad Dad was killed and deposed, Vlad the Impaler was still a teenager living as a ward in the Ottoman Empire. But fast forward a year later, 1448, and Vlad III is 17 years old and ready to crack some skulls. <laughs> yeah. He's, <laughs> uh, he's been thinking about this for a few years. Yeah. And he's sharpening stakes. He's whittling them <laughs> he's in his rocking chair. <laughs> and he's good to go. So John Hunyadi and cousin Vladislav, they leave Wallachia to join the Second Battle of Kosovo. And in their absence, Vlad the Impaler, he just sneaks back into Wallachia. Like, he literally just sneaks into the country with Ottoman support, and he takes the throne. And this isn't badass. Like, it sounds badass, like he took the throne. No, but he kind of just waited for everyone to leave the country. He's a kid. He's 17. He was like, oh, I see an opening. I'm going to go for it. Mm -hmm. But his reign only lasts two months. And then Hanyadi and his cousin come back, and they just kick him out. This sounds like a very 17-year-old kid type yeah. situation, except on oh, yeah. an extremely different, yeah. you I'm, know. Yeah, you're like, I'm the prince now. And yes. like, no, you just saw an empty throne. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh-huh. Yeah. Um, it's sort of unclear what happens uh, during the period of exile that follows. As mentioned earlier, Vlad the Impaler was held hostage in the Ottoman Empire from age 11 to 17 and was treated as nobility, receiving a great education in both science, philosophy, and the arts, but also in combat and warfare. So he did build trust. Mm -hmm. And he also manifested a huge underlying grudge against the Ottomans. Mm. And after his failed attempt to seize Wallachia, he flipped allegiances and built an alliance with King Ladislaw V of Hungary, who, lucky for him, also hated cousin Vladislav II. Everyone might love Raymond, but they hate cousin Vladislav. Mm -hmm. Which is one of the most <laughs> popular shows in Romania to this day, <laughs> I believe. Yeah. Oh, God. It was then in 1456, eight years later after his first attempt, and now with the support of the King of Hungary, that Vlad made his second move to seize power in Wallachia. And this time, like, he is in the zone. He's not just sneaking in. He succeeds. And this is when Vlad the Impaler starts to make a name for himself and become the true menace that history and legacy know him as today. Mm -hmm. Because Vlad isn't just out for power and legitimacy in pursuit of Wallachia, he's out for vengeance. He challenges his cousin Vladislav to hand-to-hand -hand combat. God. Now, yeah. 
<laughs> not only does Vlad the Impaler defeat Vladislav, but legend claims that he also beheads him in the process. Uh-huh. It's pretty metal. And clearly he was trying to send a message. Mm-hmm. Huge one. And also sounds like he just had a lot of, uh, you know, he liked doing this kind of stuff, as we know. Yes. <laughs> so he's like, yeah, yes. I'll behead him. It's like, it's, it's like a vengeance, but also definitely a, a, enjoying it. Yeah, he has a repertoire of about 10 torture moves that we'll get to later. And Ooh. beheadings is definitely on, at the top of the list. Mm-hmm. And so all those Wallachian boyars, the military that we mentioned earlier, betrayed Vlad Dad, led to his death. Well, Vlad the Impaler, he brings a fiery reckoning down on them. One of his first orders after consolidating power is to round up all the nobility, anybody who is connected to his father's murder, or he even just suspects was, mm-hmm. and then he ends them. And true to the reputation he develops, he does this in some pretty uh, interesting ways. Yes. Reportedly, he killed more people than the European witch hunt, racking up over 100,000 deaths, which is impressive given, you know, that the witch hunt spanned hundreds of years. (laughs) Um, It was during his second period in power that Vlad enacted some of his most heinous and evil punishments. Here are some of the more gory and extreme highlights of his reign of terror. Whether these are all truth or legend, you know, isn't clear, but they definitely indicate what kind of man and ruler he was. Mm -hmm. That story we told you at the beginning of the show about the 20,000 corpses that Vlad impaled to send the message to the Ottomans. Mm. Well, that happened during this second period, this period where he did all of or most of his big, like horrific acts that we still talk about today. And it also really solidified his love of impaling, which did we met? He loved it. <laughs> he loved it. And I think, you know, is it, for people that know of him today, you just, that's like the one piece of information, you know, mm-hmm. um, and we'll say it, we'll say it a ton more. He loved impaling. Yeah. So. <laughs> Legend has it that when one of Vlad's own knights held his nose due to the stench of the mass impaling, Vlad had him impaled too. He loved impaling. He just loved it. He loved it. <laughs> Did you? Do you guys get it? Do you understand? I just yeah. want to make sure everyone gets he it. He loved it. And he found new, and in, that was the thing too, he found new and inventive creative ways to impale people. And he was a creative person? He, you know, he, it's like the old adage, never stop learning. Mm-hmm. Never stop learning, never stop mm-hmm. growing. He never stopped impaling. Uh, <laughs> He impaled his victims from anus to mouth and apparently would douse his spears in oil to keep the people from tearing. Jesus. Um, because it, it was like a lubrication. It was this full body stabbing ordeal and he wanted to ensure that there were also hours of torture. Well, he did that. He succeeded. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we're going to get into some of the other stuff that he did to torture people. But now that we've we've at least tackled the impaling... I think we should hear a word from our sponsors. Nothing says fun summer night like hanging out with friends around a roaring fire, making s'mores, talking, and laughing. Pers- that's personally one of my favorite nights. Mm-hmm. Pulling out the s'more sticks, which are kind of like steaks, mm-hmm. little sticks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then just, you know, having some marshmallows, some graham crack- cracker. This is where some of life's best moments happen and lasting memories are made. A hundred percent. I sometimes make s'mores in my microwave. Now that I have this stove, I am so excited to use it and actually make them properly. I'm not kidding. (laughs) Um, And, you know, a smokeless fire pit from Solo Stove makes your outdoor moments even more memorable. Because instead of having to constantly dodge smoky campfire fumes, you can sit back, relax, and actually enjoy the fire and the ambience. A hundred percent. Jess, do you camp at all? 
I have camped a few times in my life. I did it a lot when I was younger, but um, the last time I camped as an adult was probably about five years ago and I miss it. And I absolutely want to start camping again. But ever since we got the stove, it's giving me a great excuse to tell my partner, we're going camping. Because you can take it with you. (laughs) Yes. And uh, camping is great because you just, you get out of the city. There are so many digital distractions. Life's busy. And I love just like getting out under the stars in the middle of nowhere, warming by the fire as the sun goes down, you know, or even just like on the beach. Yeah. I've had some great campfire moments on the beach too. I've never camped on the beach, but I've always wanted to. Solo Stove has a smokeless design that is head and shoulders above typical fire pits, like truly smokeless, no icky smoke fumes sticking to your clothes or making you cough. It's so easy to use, unpack, get started. Within minutes of receiving my bonfire, I had it set up outside and ready to go. The guides provided in the kit are like so straightforward. I have the bonfire edition, which is kind of the mid-range. It's Solo's most popular version. And it's really great for backyards. Another great thing about Solo Stove is that they're also very easy to move and transport, aka like, you know, using it when you're camping. So uh, do that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. The cleanup is really easy too. You just have to have a few um, bits of starter and then, you know, light and your fire is blazing in minutes. And there's not a ton of mess either, like no charred chunks of wood, just pure white ash left behind to dispose. The Solo Stove has stainless steel construction designed to regulate airflow and burn more efficiently. So little smoke, you'll wonder how there's so much fire, actually. They're built to last, plus they just look really cool and polished. Mm -hmm. And they are so confident over at Solo Stove that you'll love it, that they offer a lifetime warranty and a 30-day free return policy. Right now, you can get big discounts on all fire pits during Solo Stove's 4th of July sale and use promo code 30MM at solostove.com for an extra 10% off. That's solostove.com, promo code 30MM, 30MM, for $10 off on top of their incredible 4th of July sale discounts. But hurry, the 4th of July sale ends July 10th. For most of us, learning a second language in high school or college wasn't exactly a high point in our academic careers. I mm-hmm. I can attest to that personally. <laughs> yeah, I took about a, a year of Spanish in high school and remember very little. <laughs> Me too. Three years and remember mm-hmm. really nothing. <laughs> but now, thanks to Babbel, the language learning app that sold more than 10 million subscriptions, there's an addictively fun and easy way to learn a new language. Whether you'll be traveling abroad, connecting in a deeper way with your family, or you just have some free time, Babbel teaches bite-sized language lessons that you'll actually use in the real world. Mm-hmm. I started learning French through Babbel, which uh, I do know French because I'm from Canada and we grow up learning it, but it's always good to like brush up. Mm-hmm. and uh, revisit some languages. Babbel's 15-minute lessons make it the perfect way to learn a new language on the go. Other language learning apps use AI for their lesson plans, but Babbel lessons were created by over 100 language experts with the teaching methods specifically proven to be effective. With Babbel, you can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, and German. Plus, Babbel's speech recognition technology helps you to improve your pronunciation and your accent. Yes. There are so many ways to learn with Babbel. In addition to lessons, you can access podcasts, games, videos, stories, and even live classes. It comes with a 20-day money-back guarantee, so start your new language learning journey today with Babbel. Right now, save up to 60% off of your subscription when you go to babbel.com slash 30mm. That's babbel.com slash 30mm30mm for up to 60% off your subscription. Babbel, language for life. 
So back to the episode. Um, yeah, we covered the impaling. Okay, yes, we've done that. Got it. Got it. <laughs> but, but now there's a yeah, whole yes. other slew of stuff that Vlad was into. Oh yeah, he he also had a thing for setting people on fire mm. and entire villages. Oh, um, oh, even ones that were in his domain that his enemies conquered. Because if he couldn't have them, no one could. And apparently, he also burned down a lot of churches with people inside them as well. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. It was a she locked the doors and yep. torched them. Maybe, though, instead of Vlad the Impaler, he should have been called Vlad the Tickler because <laughs> that was another form of torture he liked to employ, which sounds so silly, but it does, that's the kind of thing that can psychologically break a person. Yes. Apparently, he would hang his victims over a sharpened stake high up in the air, and then he would give them a rope to hold on to and, like, tickle their feet, their armpits with feathers, and then... As the person being tortured grew more and more tired and like obviously they're holding on for so long, they're mm-hmm. laughing, mm-hmm. their muscles are alternating from being very tense to loose, they would lose their ability to hold the rope and then eventually fall and impale on the stake. Yeah, I just like saw that image in my brain. Um, legend has it, Vlad also tortured and killed his enemies by putting them in giant copper pots and lighting fires beneath, essentially cooking them alive. I just feel like he had too much time on his hands. Yes. I was like, all of this is so just, he's just having a freaking field day. Yeah. And so it's so also creative. I hate saying that word because the creative sounds like a, a, a good thing, but it uh-huh. is just like, man, dude. It just, yeah. It reminds me of like internet people that leave like negative internet comments or harass people online mm-hmm. where I'm like, you just, you have too much time. Yeah. And that's how I feel like. Vlad has too much yeah, time. Yeah, he's just like too he's much coming time. up with he's all bored. this stuff. And he's yeah. like, get me the cop. You know, I need a copper pot. Well, what do you need it for? I'm going to put some people in it, cook them alive. Okay, dude. Yeah. Go do something else with your time. Damn. Yeah, get a hobby. Get oh. a hobby. <laughs> <laughs> um, we mentioned before a couple times that Vlad had this revenge complex against the nobles who betrayed his father. And one of the most notable and brutal acts of vengeance toward them happened on an Easter Sunday when he invited all of these noble families to a feast. And this is where it sort of gets all Game of Thrones red wedding up in here. I like that we're using examples from like Game of Thrones or other things to help people better really understand, hey, this was red wedding Game of Thrones type stuff. I guess if you think about it, like George R.R. Martin, he took so much inspiration from history and real things. So like... We're comparing it to Game of Thrones, but we should be doing the reverse, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> yes, 100%. Yeah. yeah. We only, you know, I'm, we're huge entertainment fanatics. So. Yeah. But so they've, they've finished their fancy dinner and then Vlad is like, psych. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah. yeah. They, were, they were seized at the end of the meal and forced to walk 50 miles to Panari. There he had them work themselves to death, uh, rebuilding Panari Castle there, which Vlad would then use as a stronghold. Vlad ultimately replaced his nobility class, creating a new nobility that would be loyal to him. Uh-huh. He took all these, like, less wealthy people and was like, hey, you're a noble now. Mm-hmm. And they they were happy because they're like, oh, I was just a, I was a peasant before. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, what a good way to curry favor yep. with people. Psychologically get to them. This is Reign of Terror, his second reign. It ended around 1462 when he was imprisoned by the Hungarians. And he was released around 1475. So spent about a decade 
in uh, prison. And then he regained his status as voivode of Wallachia sometime within the next year. But that didn't last very long. And, and he was ultimately killed in battle around uh, December or of 1476 or early 1477. And there's a lot of mystery surrounding his death, though. Allegedly, he was decapitated and his head was taken to the Ottomans. Uh, then the story went that his body was taken from the woods where it was kind of left and hidden by some uh, monks. And they hid his body in a tomb about 40 kilometers north of Bucharest on an island in the middle of Snagov Lake. And it was beneath this monastery with the same name. They they put him under the flooring in this monastery was how the story went. And the monastery itself wasn't very ornate, but there was like this specific tile that was just above where uh, his body allegedly was interred. In 1933, researchers dug under the church and found nothing but what they thought to be a decoy tomb filled with animal bones. In 2014, there were some murmurings and stories that Vlad the Impaler's real tomb was discovered in Italy. But this claim seems a bit bogus. We may never know his true fate or his resting place. Yeah, there's like so much mystery around where he was buried. There's So there was, long ago, you know? Yeah, I mean, like, the uh, the the hoax with the Italy tomb that kind of stemmed from also this other legend myth that he didn't actually die like he wasn't actually murdered by the Ottomans and he survived it mm -hmm. and then mm -hmm. yeah uh, and there are more stories and legends about the deeds and life of Vlad the Impaler but at a certain point due to just the passage of time and scarcity of information remember the printing press was only just being invented at this time. Um, we don't have so much to go off of, and it's hard to know what descends into truth or myth or to tell reality from myth and truth from embellishment. And it sort of begs one major question, which is where did all this heckin' vampire stuff come from? <laughs> <laughs> I love vampires. Uh -huh. uh, well, as we mentioned earlier, his name translates to Dracula, so that might be the start of something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I see the connection. Yes. And there is the whole, like, stake thing. Vampires, mm -hmm. you know, you, to kill a vampire, you pale them with a stake. Vlad, that was his M.O. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. And plus, it doesn't help that if you Google Vlad the Impaler, you'll see a lot of 10 most interesting facts about Vlad lists that claim that he dipped bread in the blood of his enemies and ate it. You know, whether that's true or not, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, yeah. Given his track record, it's yeah, like, okay. I, yeah. I, I could believe it for sure. Mm -hmm. yep. And it would be a very over-the-top vampiric thing to do. Uh, I do think that there's, this is an instance where people are conflating his bloodthirsty nature with being actually bloodthirsty. Like, yes, by literally being like, I need to drink blood to survive. Yes. Yeah. Because a lot of academics are like, no, he didn't actually dip bread in the blood of his enemies. That's mm -hmm. being, that's an mm -hmm. exaggeration. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. And yet there's still, you know, the, the major discourse that draws connections between Vlad and the, uh, Vlad the Impaler and Bram Stoker's literary creation, even citing Vlad as the inspiration for Stoker's 1897 novel. And why? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Why? The, the theory that Vlad the third and Dracula were one and the same was kind of popularized in the 70s by these historians, Radu Florescu and Raymond T. McNally, they wrote this book in search of Dracula and drew that big connection. And though it's far from accepted by all historians, the New York Times, you know, claims that this idea, this concept that they 
push in their book, it just took hold of the public imagination. Like mm-hmm. people were like, oh, Vlad the Impaler, he was our real life Dracula. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people that believe in vampires or things that you classify as fantasy and mystical are or maybe secretly always trying to find, not even secretly, trying to find like, oh no, there actually is a real thing in history. Oh, we found it. It was Vlad. It was him. Oh, He's yeah. the real first vampire. Okay, so this is, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, at least- or I think there's this other level where it's like, this This is so haunting, this work about this vampire, this you know Dracula, that it's even scarier to think that a real life person could have been so evil. That is true. To th- yes, but according to Dracula, Sense and Nonsense, published in uh, 2020 by Elizabeth Miller, in 1890s, Stoker read a book about Wallachia. Although it did not mention Vlad III, Stoker fixated on the name Dracula. He wrote in his notes, in Wallachian language means devil, D-E-V-I-L. Wallachians were accustomed to give it as a surname to any person who rendered himself conspicuous either by courage, cruel actions, or cunning. Mm-hmm. So it looks like he just really liked the name. He was like, oh, this is cool. Like, I have this character, and I think this would be very fitting. And it's certainly possible that Stoker chose to name his character Dracula for the translation and connotations. And, of course, vampires as a concept, they they were already in existence, like... Bram Stoker didn't come up with dr- vampires. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they come from Eastern European folklore and Middle mm-hmm. Age superstitions. But there are other sources we can point to as inspiration for his work, right, Jess? Mm-hmm. Yes, according to Stoker's son, his father always claimed the inspiration for the book came from a nightmare induced by a too generous helping of dressed crab at <laughs> supper. Hey, I've never really had crab, never been a crab person, but does this happen? Do you eat crab leaves? (laughs) I do. I like crab. This could be a crab dream. (laughs) Okay. I did not know there were such things as too much crab dreams. (laughs) There's a a place in LA called the Boiling Pot, and uh, you can just get bags and bags of crab legs. I will say that when we were talking about him, you know, putting people in a pot, and just cooking them, I my brain immediately went to like lobster and crab and just literally <laughs> throwing them in there. And here we are now. <laughs> oh, yeah. That, I mean, maybe that's the connection there. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, the BBC has this great little article about some of the sources Stoker used in research for his book based on investigations and findings made by the London Library. Because Stoker was actually a member there. Like, it's funny to think, you know, he has he had a library card and <laughs> he just like went to the library and borrowed 20, some 25, maybe 25 to 30 books that he used in his research for the book. Like, he never actually went out to the places he was writing about. Like, he never went to Transylvania. He just borrowed books and then... That's bonkers. And some of these books, they still exist and they still have markings in the margins of them. Markings left by Stoker. Left by Stoker. That's so, so wild. It is. The most notable book is from a Scottish writer, Emily Gerard. She wrote The Land Beyond the Forest, which was published in 1888, which was about a decade before Stoker's work. So between 1883 and 1885, Gerard was living with her husband in Transylvania because he was a soldier in the Austrian army and they had posted him there. And so she's like on the ground in Transylvania and she's writing this book. The BBC cites Gerard's book as the work that introduced Stoker to the concept of Nosferatu, a vampire-like creature who sucks the blood of innocent victims. You Mm -hmm. might have known him. Yep. And 
1935, Stoker's son donated a copy of The Land Beyond the Forest to the London Library, showing not only did he use the library's copy, but he also owned one. So I think it's safe to say he was a, he was a fan of Gerard's work, and it was definitely an inspiration for Dracula. For sure. Some of the other books Stoker reportedly borrowed, annotated, and referenced include The Book of Werewolves by Reverend Sabine Baringold and an account of the principalities of Wallachia and Moldavia. And the thing that really makes me laugh, because I think that we put a lot of weight and pomp and circumstances to some of these classics, Mm. like, you know, Bram Stoker. Oh, my gosh. He must have been a very serious man. He wrote this classic literature. Mm. But he just went to the library and borrowed a bunch of books. Yeah. Like, the the fact that he didn't really go to these places is just astounding to me. Yeah. And then apparently, so the story goes, after he finished Dracula, he, like, contacted the bank because, like, guess this is what the library card would have gone through and he told them to cancel his library card <laughs> like he was he was done writing the book he he used what he needed and then he was like cancel my library card it was like the biggest mic drop in history yep yep mm-hmm. i'm out regardless of the source of inspiration of vlad and stoker's count are now forever intertwined and we see this a bunch in popular culture today such as video games and movies in assassin's creed revelations you have to find vlad's tomb with his skull and sword inside mm-hmm. yeah so it's like it doesn't help that modern media still like conflates the idea that vlad was dracula the real life dracula yes and uh, in another video game, Age of Empires 2, the night attack at Tarogoviste is played out in one of the final Dracula campaigns. So, like, they're lifting, you know, this event from history and they're applying it to, like, a mystical character. Mm-hmm. And, of course, who could forget 2014's film Dracula Untold, <laughs> which also has a version of the night attack. But in this version, Dracula blocks the sun with black clouds instead of the battle occurring at night. Yes. Um, yes. That's definitely yeah. seen that one. Yeah. Uh, yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so history and media, they just kind of continue to twist and evolve this narrative of Vlad being the inspo for Dracula, and they feed the engine of his legacy. There's so much more to read about him, though. We only covered, I think, a bit of the surface of the horrible, horrible stuff that he did. Just the surface. Yeah. If you've got the stomach for it, there are a wealth of atrocities that he committed against his enemies, his countrymen alike. I think he's a fascinating and obviously very uh, demented Mm -hmm. person to, to look into. Any final thoughts, Jess? Like, do you st- I I think it's fun to think of like, oh, this was the real life Dracula, but I don't know the validity of that. No, yeah. I, of course, have heard this, in, like you said, in, in pop culture for years and whatnot. And I, I am personally, I love vampire stuff. I'm a vampire nerd. Vampires over werewolves for me personally. Um, <laughs> but so yeah, no, learning more about this, it was nice to better understand the, um, how this really, he really wasn't, the first vampire and even then vampires are again are fantasy and i believe that they are fantasy they are fun to think about um but yeah better understanding that he was not dracula but i have to say i wish that there was um mental health stuff back then because i would love to just sit down with him and be like i need to better understand your brain what's going on in there what are your thoughts like what are you thinking about Like, I just, I just want to talk to him. (laughs) I wish that they had gotten the move on that printing press a century before. 
Yes. Because I would love if there were just more legitimate and lasting accounts of, you know, so we, we could separate the fact from the fiction. A hundred percent. Over any, and you know, oh yeah. Or, uh, there are so many people through history that like, if they had just left a journal and. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And then also, so, I mean, talking about history in general, there's also things that have been changed or rewritten or whatever. But yeah, I would have loved to just see, seen that one journal of, I want, Vlad, did you keep a journal? Did you have, did you <laughs> yeah. have one? Did you write your thoughts and feelings yeah. down? Dear diary, <laughs> yeah. the peasants alive today. Yes, um, yes. I, and I do think that like, oh, of course, like movies, TV, video games, books, it's all, it's going to pull from history. It's going to twist it. It's going to yeah, like, but um, I do think that the the narrative that Vlad the Impaler was like the pure inspiration for Dracula is maybe mm-hmm. maybe not entirely the case. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think uh, I think if, my personal opinion, Bram Stoker just he saw the cool name Dracula and what it meant, mm-hmm. and he was like, "That's a great name for my character." It really was and and is Dracula. Like just I don't know. I wonder what Vlad the Impaler would think if he knew that there was this character named after him and people thought that he was the inspiration. You're right. I wonder what he would think. I think that he would be like, no, I want to be known for my impaling. Um, yeah. But yeah. Sorry. But he'd be like, well, he'd, he'd hear that vamp- vampires get impaled and he'd be like, what do you mean they impale me? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you know? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. They drive stake through me? No. But even though there was, you know, where all of the kind of rumors or, or stories came about of him like dipping bread into the blood of his victims, you know, even though that might have been um, embellished in a way, again, like the, the type of person he was, I really wouldn't put it past him, but yeah. it doesn't necessarily mean he's out there like sucking blood out of other people. He's just no. like the feeling of power. Like I just killed all my victims. I dipped my bread in my, the blood, you know what I mean? Yeah. Fetishizing it. Fe- exactly. For sure. Exactly. Um, well, I, I, I think he's he's interesting as, as he is, you know, menacing a person as he was. Yes. Awful person, awful person, but fascinating. <laughs> so, yeah. And now we're like in the swing of season two. Next week, we're talking about reincarnation. Yes. Yes. I know it's a fascination of yours specifically to Jess. It is. It is so fascinating to learn about, to better understand and kind of look at it from all sides, you know. So I'm excited to dive into that one. Mm-hmm. Me too. Uh, any other stuff going on? Always merch on sale. Always, always, mm-hmm. always. We have our mm-hmm. adorable shirts in the store and our stickers at the Rooster Teeth uh, store. I love seeing the photos people have sent us, like styling the shirts, wearing them. Yes. Looking cool. Yes. You you guys, they're, keep, keep them coming. And um, RTX, Elise, we are going to be at RTX. We're going to have a panel. And I can't wait to do this in person with you. And Me too. Uh, we have some fun surprises. Yeah, we'll be at Austin the weekend of July 4th this weekend. Mm-hmm. 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 Looking forward to that. You know, I have to say this this episode has made me uh, hungry and for, for fondue. <laughs> what kind of fondue exactly? What Is do it we red? Do? <laughs> Is it... A little, what, what, explain yourself, Elise. Yeah, you know, just dip some, I don't know, we'll find a few sauces for the bread. I don't know. Maybe we'll mix it up a little bit. Yum. Mm. See y'all next week. <laughs>